Hey everyone, welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. I am your co-host, Kyle Bird. And I'm Matt Parmley. Um, and we're back. Um, I'm I'm glad that uh we're we're getting more in, in we're getting into a more uh steady recording uh schedule for the time being. Yeah, we're um, also back to our uh, normal shenanigans of, you know, behind the scenes recording an hour later than we planned, which is like our typical. Yeah. That hasn't <laughs> happened in a while. Usually it's been like 10 minutes, but we were yeah. a full hour. Um, I was, I don't know, I, I was putting together our notes, which took a little longer than anticipated. Um, I'd done a lot of reading. Well, I guess spoiler alert for episode that's not out yet. I was doing a lot of reading about the movie <laughs> Them, right? About yeah. the giant ants. I, 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 I did most of the reading over the weekend. And I, but I didn't type up the notes yet. And I don't know, I'm just really bad at like bookmarking things and like leaving notes for myself. So there were a few things I was trying to go back and fact check. And I couldn't remember where I got it from. And as you can imagine, um, trying to look up a specific fact about a movie called Them on Google <laughs> is... Very frustrating. I'm sure that was easy, but not, <laughs> not hard at all. So, yeah, it was just like trying to f- put together the right combination of keywords just to get me this link that I I looked at like a few days ago. Anyway, um, no, I'm glad that we're, we're uh, uh, you know, really trying to record more often um, lately. Um, so... Uh, Matt, you have some news, right? Yeah. So, and, and, uh, well, and part of that is, I guess, why we're trying to essentially over the for between now and Thanksgiving, we're basically trying to record as many episodes as we can. Um, Matt, why do you why why do you why don't you you tell us why we're trying to build up such a heavy bank of podcasts right now? Uh, one because we hate ourselves. No, actually, <laughs> I, I look forward to doing this. Um, so most of you, if you're friends with me on Facebook, know this already, but my wife, Sarah, is actually pregnant, and she is now, at the time of this recording, about 20 weeks along, and our baby boy is due in January, so middle of January. So Bird and I try to take like a semi-holiday like hiatus, but um, with the baby coming, you know, that could be a bit extended this uh, in, starting in January, so like wanted to crank out as many episodes uh, as we can between now and then, and then also like really looking forward to Halloween. I think we have some really cool stuff planned, but um, yeah, my wife, Sarah is pregnant, super excited about it. Landon's excited to, to be a big brother. 
Uh, I'm excited to introduce yet another Parmley child to monster movies and, uh, of course, indoctrinate them into the ways of kaiju. <laughs> Uh, but no, it's going to be great. And baby, so far, everything is normal and healthy and Sarah's doing really well. And, um, actually that's one of the reasons, um, I was trying to go to G Fest kind of last minute this year was before we got COVID, which sucked and, uh, was because we knew we had the baby coming. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I wanted to make sure that we could, I could take Landon and get all that kind of done and have him go to his first G Fest before we introduce a new member of the family. Um, but we are stoked. And, uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's really cool to see one of the best things about being a parent is like having your child watch these movies for the first time and seeing it through their eyes. Um, so looking forward to doing that again. Yeah. If, if there's one thing that we do as parents, it is, uh, ruin our children. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is try to project ourselves, uh, onto our children and raise them in our own self image, <laughs> 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 which me, you know, I have, you know, Julia's very typical of, you know, little girls her age, so I, I have very I have I have more uh varying degrees of success. You know, she'll watch something like Godzi Band, but you know, if I'm like, hey, like let me let's watch, you know, I don't know, Godzilla versus like Gigan or something, she'd be like, I no, I, I wanna go watch I don't know, something on YouTube or <laughs> or something. <laughs> but, one, of the, one of the things that happened actually recently that like crushed my soul is we were watching, and it was like Ultraman or something. I don't know what it was, but Landon, for the first time, started making fun of the way the suits the suits look. And, like, you know, he's eight, and I knew it was going to happen at some point. Oh, that's gonna, I mean, I was doing that. I mean, I, I, I love the stuff as much now as I did then. I love the stuff back then as much <laughs> as I do now. But, I mean, I was doing that oh, I know. pretty quickly. <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's that sense of, like, that, that wonder that, you know, right. a couple years ago he still had. And now he's seeing, like, some of the different flaws and things, and it was just, like, kind of this weird, surreal moment. Is, yeah, also, it, it, well, yeah, I mean, he, he's going to be, you know, as people just in general get older, they're going to be more critical of, oh, he's, well, ev everything. He is a, uh, he's a very, like, sometimes cynical little eight-year-old, and I love it. Um, not always, because sometimes that translates into him making a comment, like, in the wrong setting in front of people, and you're like, oh. This is going to reflect poorly on me as a parent, but he's he's been awesome, and I'm I'm just glad, honestly, that he loves this stuff right now. And whether or not it sticks when he's older, like these are the things that me as a parent are going to always cherish. And, and like I said, that's why like I'm looking forward to being able to do all that again. And you know, I've shared previously on the podcast, like my wife and I were actually the reason part of the reason there's been kind of a gap. You know, he's eight, mm -hmm. we have another child coming. Uh, is because we were foster parents for th for like three and a half years off and on. And yeah, we you, you you've kind of had practice at the uh, the having two kids thing. Well, one of the foster kids was like an infant, if I I recall. Yeah, well, actually, right? we thought we were going to be able to adopt. Right, and right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and that was. I mean, you go from like here's this child you're raising. We took him home. He was three days old from the hospital. Had him in our house for like four months, and we thought based on the caseworker and everybody that we had talked to that we were actually going to be able to adopt him. And then that did happen. And then a year later, you know, here we are, we have our, our own child on the way. So it, you know, it worked out the way that it was supposed to work out in my book. Um, so just really happy. And like I said, also super happy just to be doing the podcast and cranking out the episodes. We've finally hit, I think a really good rhythm and uh, I'm excited just to, to get through all the crazy stuff that we have planned for Halloween. And, uh, and from there, just kind of see what happens. 
Yeah. Um, the whole like last year just in general has been crazy and one thing after another. So, I mean, for the next few months, really getting more into like a, the kind of routine that we, we had a few, you know, like two years ago, I think will be good. You know, I, I mean, it's just been one thing after another, whether it's, you know, uh, personal issues coming up or, uh, you know, we've both had COVID at different times, you know, uh, vacations, you know, getting, uh, uh, having, having to work more hours than usual. I mean, it's just been one thing after another and we're, we're kind of, you know, right now things are calm. So we're, we're finally like getting back into the swing of things. So, uh, I do want to talk about the other bit of news. Uh, which is I don't even know if you call it news, honestly, Bird. It's the whole King Kong thing on Disney Plus. Like, I do you yeah, think it, this it's, happened? Because I'm not sure that. It will. Um. Well, I just in reading about it, and and we we talked about this. Um. I don't know. A few years ago, when when plans for a, a live action King Kong show were underway at one of the big networks, I think it was NBC. Um. It might have been ABC. I think it was NBC, though. Um, and uh, at the time, the people that made that uh, that Bye Bye Man movie that no one saw um, were attached to it. And it was a live-action Kong series that was basically going to be adapting the Joe DeVito book series. Um, if people out there don't remember or know who he is... Um, he wrote the the current version of the novelization of the original movie. Um, that novelization fell into public domain, so he wrote a new version of it. Um, and remember, uh, Marion Cooper's estate controls all the literary rights to King Kong. Um, so they, they he did that so they would have a um, their own version that they can claim ownership of. Uh, before that, uh, or around the same time, he'd written a Kong sequel that also functioned. Well, it, it 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 was like uh, Carl Denham and stuff after Kong, but most of the book was like told in flashback to stuff previous to Kong. So it was kind of a prequel and sequel. That's the only book of his I've read. I I read it once, like I don't know, it was probably like fifteen years ago that it came out. wasn't that great. But he's continued to make other Kong uh, stories in you know in in books, and and it's kind of like its own little literary. Um, universe right now. Like, there's been comic books set in that universe, different novels and stuff. Um, and uh, it sounds, and that's what that old series from a few years ago was going to be adapting. And it, and from what I am seeing, the the series that uh, uh, was announced today is going to be based on the same stuff. Um, so it sounds like they they managed to get that picked up by Disney Plus. Um, James Wan, um, you know, he's the guy that, uh, made Saw and, um, Malignant and, the the Conjuring films and, um, Aquaman. Um, he, his company, uh, Atomic Monster, I think they're called, because he's a kaiju fan, haha. Um, but they're, they're, uh, they're the production company on it, um, so I don't know. Uh, we'll see if Disney. I mean, with it being Disney and them just kind of being eager to buy anything at this point, and with you know James Wan's name adding a little bit of prestige, we'll see. It might we. 
It might ha- I, I, I would say it's more likely to happen with those folks involved than, you know, NBC and the Bye Bye Man guys, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I mean... Uh, if, if anything comes of it, I mean, we might not even get it till later down the line, you know, maybe they don't want to, you know, do it within the next few years because the Kong stuff and the MonsterVerse is still going, you know, so, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but, uh, it's probably slightly more likely than it was, but we'll see. I mean, it seems like every few years there's, a an announcement for a Kong thing that just doesn't happen. And there's also the Netflix uh, uh, animated series coming up. So there's just, you know, who knows if they'll decide to carry through with it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm skeptical. And, I mean, you know, it's Kong. So, like, I'm sure we'll check it out if it happens. <laughs> yeah, it's Kong. And, it, it, you know, if it's on Disney+, Plus, that means it'll probably be, like, six to eight episodes and they'll probably be like under an hour and they'll come out just weekly. So it'll probably be easy to watch. You know, it's not going to be a whole season of, you know, two hour episodes dumped at once. No offense to stranger things, but that was like, that's just a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) And a lot of stuff. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a big, I've, I've talked about this before. It's why I struggle so much with like the tokusatsu shows. I just like I'm not a, some people are binge watchers like by nature and I am not I I prefer my TV to be like week to week That is old school but I will say this like there's only stranger things especially cuz like those episodes were sometimes an hour and a half or longer it's it's hard to find, to carve out that much time mm-hmm. especially if you're trying to binge watch And especially like with shows like that that come out like all at once you know it it's way uh like it's way more tempting to want to just watch it and get it over with because you know you know especially with a show as big as stranger things you know it's going to become water cooler talk <laughs> and you know there's going to be people that are like at diff- that have watched it all in one weekend and then there's going to be people that are like yeah i i you know i don't want to watch all this at once and you know it's going to be way easier for it to get spoiled for you yeah, and that's just you know that's just one of the challenges of you know being a consumer in you know the internet era, it, it, you know, and so yeah, it's like you almost you feel more like your hand is being forced to consume it at a more rapid pace than you might want to. Well, yeah, like I haven't even finished season three of The Boys. I haven't started She Hulk, and I want to check that out based on some like the reviews that I've heard from people are very conflicting. But I'm mm-hmm. interested to check it out. But the second a show drops now, yeah, you get memes with spoilers immediately. Yeah, and that that's I hate that. And, that, and getting back to the model that Amazon uses, Disney Plus uses, where it's usually like one episode, like especially the Disney shows, they're like under an hour and it's like one episode per week. So it's like, even if I'm not fully on board with something, I can at least, I can still be like, eh, it's 40 minutes a week. Who cares? You know, <laughs> like She-Hulk wasn't great. I, you know, only the first episodes out was all I've watched, but you know, it's not like I hated it. And it, I was like, Oh, I'm not going to watch anymore. Like, I just can't stand to watch any more of this. It's like, eh, whatever. You're Which I guess, I guess, best, you know, they're, seen yeah. Which I guess that's kind of like how they almost get away with it is because they're like, we can make something that's 
just okay enough for you not to hate it and keep watching. <laughs> so. That seems to be the like the the Marvel show way right now with it. Like anything that's been dry, I, I haven't like loved any of the shows past Loki. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see what this is going to be like or if it even happens. You know, but um. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about another monster property. Yes, we're uh, we're we're uh, well. One thing that I, I I like about you know this current period for us is not only are we like finally committing to just cranking out episodes more, um, but there's not like a flood of new crap that we need to review. Like there's not. <laughs> You know, I mean, like, at one point it was like there was, like, a new Monsterverse movie this week, a new Ultraman thing that week, a new Asylum <laughs> mockbuster of the Monsterverse movie the next week, and uh, some other garbage got, you know, thrown somewhere, There's and then there's a, you know, Pacific Rim anime season this week. You know, for a while there, it was like, you know, you couldn't catch a break. And now we're finally, like, you know, there's not a lot of new crap going on. Um, And uh, whatever both Toho and Legendary are doing right now, you know, for whatever reason, they've odd, no one has, like, revealed those things in, like, a public form. You know, there's just online chatter. So there's really nothing going on right now. So we can knock out some of these movies that uh, we really should have done a, a long, long time. time. Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> um, like there, there's a short list of maybe ten or so movies that I think most every other kaiju podcast probably covered within their first two years that we never got around to. So that's what we're we've we, we've been kind of. Um, saying we're going to go ahead and do. Um, and uh, one of those is Yongari. Um, and uh, I know the Yongari fandom uh, has been pestering us constantly to talk <laughs> about Yongari. Um, you know, the Yongari fans, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're very vocal. Um, you know, they tend to pop up everywhere. Is that right? They don't exist. That's the... <laughs> uh, you know, that's true. That's what the meme tells me that was floating yeah. around. The... That's true, there. that's true. Um, anyway, uh, there's uh, an, some people who have seen Yongari. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, one thing about Yongari, though, is it is one of the more infamous, I guess, uh, Godzilla sort of... I don't know, knockoffs. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Korea has uh, a small handful of kaiju films, um, uh, but Yongari is probably the most known. I don't know if you would say Yongari is iconic, um, but probably, as far as Korean monster movies, probably the most famous outside of, like, you know, if you're going to count the host... Uh, which yeah. uh, which is great. On our host episode, though, I did talk about why I don't necessarily consider it a kaiju movie like most people. But the host is awesome. Um, but Yongari, uh, yeah, I mean, Yongari has been referenced here and there. Um, 
you know, Mystery Science Theater, um, their, uh, the first season of their Netflix run had a, uh, a Yongari episode, um, you know, there's a, in, in Pacific Rim Uprising, there's the part that shows, like, it's like an Easter egg, and it's got, like, little diagrams of, mm. like, different monsters, it shows, like, their heads on a screen, like, monsters that have shown up, and, like, they have stuff like, uh, you know, Gigan and Gamera and Gauss and Yongari is one of them. Um, uh, so, you know, I guess some, some people who are, who really, uh, kind of, uh, probably people that were around in like the seventies and eighties when this movie was on TV a lot, you know, um, probably that generation probably knows Yongari the best, um, but uh, 1967 is uh, when Yongari came out uh, in South Korea. It's actually not the first Korean kaiju movie. Um, 1962, there was a movie called Bulgasari, um, which is uh, um, an iron-eating monster in Korean folklore, um, which probably for kaiju fans uh, and pr- probably a lot of anyone that's heard of it outside of Korea would know that as being the story that uh, Polgasari um, was based on. So that's, like, based on an old myth. Um, And uh, that had uh, its first movie version in 1962. However, that is definitely completely lost. Um, No known clips, trailers, or anything exist from it. You know, if you Google it, you can see the poster and a couple stills, but... uh, Unfortunately, that's lost. Um, and then uh, also um, the movie that uh, had previously not been available anywhere up until um, SRS had acquired it, and you know I think they're releasing it sometime you know within the next few months, probably uh, Wang mm. Magui. Um, uh, that movie w- came out before Yongari, but but the funny thing about that was uh, the company that made Wang Magui were you know they had gotten word of you know this uh, kaiju movie that was being made in Korea and they um, they uh, were like well we got to make our let's cash in on this because it's. You know, Yongari was supposed to be, you know, this big, expensive, spectacle movie, and they were like, let's, let's make our own and beat them to the punch. So Wang Magui was kind of like a mockbuster of Yongari that came out before Yongari, um, even though it was made basically as a, you know, a rushed cash grab. <laughs> um, uh, I think that uh, understanding this movie and the time it was made, I think it's... Uh, it's pretty beneficial to have an understanding of Korean and Japanese um, history, you know, the, the relationship between the countries. Um, this is sort of uh, almost a Japanese-Korean co-production. Um, uh, it had um, uh, monster suit makers from Japan, which we'll get into, and I, I also believe um, some technicians from Toei's Tokusatsu department, and uh, Toei had also entered an agreement with uh, Kukdong Enter- Entertainment, which is the studio that made Yongari to distribute it. Um, and uh, for the benefit of everyone, um, especially Matt, yep. but also everyone, 
Um, instead of saying Cook Dong Entertainment, which I don't even know if I'm saying right, um, we are going to call it Far East Entertainment, which is yeah. what that is in English. Um, anyway, so Japan and Korea have a very complicated history and um, tensions between those two countries uh, still exist. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's pretty easy to see why. Um, Japan had taken over Korea uh, from 1910 to 1945, basically as an attempt to colonize Korea before any other one could. Um, and um, that, that, that just led to awful treatment of Koreans by, by you know, um, by, by Japan. Uh, they would force them to change their names to Japanese names. To, and, you know, there's a whole thing with comfort women, which was basically Korean women um, essentially being put into sexual slavery, you know, for the benefit of uh, especially Japanese soldiers there. Um, you know, Japanese uh, really, you know, the, the, the Japanese occupation was pretty rough on, on Koreans, to, to say the least. Um, after Japan lost in World War II, um, you know, they left Korea, and then, you know, that's when the Korean War happened, which was basically a civil war between um, North and South Korea, with, uh, you know, North Korea basically trying to, um, you know, invade into the Southern Territory, and then, you know, that ended in an armistice that basically, like, officially split the countries into North Korea and South Korea. Um, South Korea is definitely the more, um, uh, I guess, I don't know, by our standards, I guess, I don't know if you want to say friendly, but the, the, the most, uh, you know, the, they're a democracy, um, you know, North Korea is, I, I mean, everyone knows North Korea is uh, a pretty crazy place, you know, it's under, you know, dictatorship and, you know, they're, they're a big nuclear threat, um, but South Korea is, you know, pretty, pretty open to everybody. Um, now, uh, a big part of these tensions between um, uh, Korea and Japan, um, you know, the, it, it was so tense that for a long time, and even a little bit today, um, South Korea had a really tight um, censorship over any Japanese media um, basically all Japanese media, um, after the, after the occupation ended, basically all Japanese media was banned. Um, uh, now Matt, do you want to kind of tell us, I guess, I guess kind of the history of those bans? Yeah. And I know like just adding some, uh, one thing I know is the Japan force, like had forced conscription of, uh, even like. South Korean soldiers into the Japanese yeah. army to fight their wars and support. Like it was just all the horrible things. And so after uh, the Japanese occupation ended with following World War II, um, Japanese media was large was largely banned in South Korea. You had no legal access to Japanese media until really the 1990s. Uh, even like in 1998, manga and Japanese literature. Um, it, it wasn't even allowed to be imported. And so you had um, like Japanese and, and Korean co-productions, films that had won uh, prestigious awards, like considered like the Oscars. Um, they were allowed to be screened in theaters, but cannot be shown on TV. And this is, and, this is as recent as 1998. 
Yeah, and like they, you said. but they also had censors that there was still censorship yeah. of those. Um, and then you had in like in 1999, um, you had Japanese music that was allowed to be performed live in venues of under 2,000 people. So like, imagine you're going in and they're counting the people like being allowed to, to be in a, a specific venue. Uh, and then movies, you know, from 1998 um, were eventually allowed to be screened uncensored in theaters. And then like even 2000, um, the the seat limits from the, like the, the seat limits were moved, but um, animated films that had won like even international awards were finally allowed to be shown. Um, Japanese films were uh, that had like the 12 plus, or the 15 plus rating were finally allowed to be sh- uh, shown as well. And again, that's 22 years ago. That's not that that far back. Um, they were allowed to be shown on cable and satellite TV. Then you had Japanese music um, without any Japanese lyrics were finally allowed to be sold. Then video games, documentaries, new broadca- uh, news broadcasts were also allowed under this new rule. And then by 2004, all Japanese films could finally be shown in theaters and all Japanese music and video games could finally be sold. Um, cable and satellite can show Japanese movies and lifestyle programs. And then... Um, Non-animated Japanese movies and TV dramas that are Japan and Korea co-productions could finally be shown. And then one thing that's interesting is that um, Korean pop songs with Japanese words in the titles have been banned as recent as 2014. So there's some restrictions that that are still kind of in place. Yeah, um, and it doesn't help that uh, you know Japan's primary ruling party, you know the LDP. Um, We've we've talked about them on this podcast several times. Um, are full of uh, uh, members in the cabinet that deny the atrocities that Japan inflicted on Korea. Still, you know, to this day. So, um, so yeah. I mean, things are still not ideal uh, between the two. Um, uh, and uh, so. Getting back to Yongari, um, the director, Kim Ki-duk, uh, who uh, <laughs> actually shares a name with a very famous um, South Korean director, um, obviously also Kim Ki-duk, but uh, he's like a big art house um, director, you know, uh, one of the like, movies, um, one of them's called Three Iron, that's probably one of his most famous films, um, but he does a lot of really critically acclaimed um, dramas, um, uh, and it's funny, you know, depend, I think a lot of places have fixed this, but, you know, even as of, you know, a few years ago, you know, if you Googled Kim Ki-duk filmography, like, you'd get all these prestigious, you know, dramas that have won all these festivals, and then, like, it'll say, like, in 1967, he directed Younger, <laughs> which is uh, two completely different people, uh, folks. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, you know, a lot. It, it, it wasn't till like uh, you know the early to mid two thousands that uh, South Korea really kind of became an international cinematic powerhouse. You know, movies like Old Boy and The Host and uh, Memories of Murder like kind of blew up here in the foreign foreign film market. Now, Korean media is everywhere. There's K-pop and um, you know Korean animation that that gets shown here. All kinds of stuff, but. Uh, um, in the '60s, uh, Korean uh, stuff did not get uh, imported very much. Um, anyway, Kim Kim Ki Duk, the uh, old one, um, he was a pretty successful director of uh, a lot of milestone 
films uh, in Korea, a lot of genre films, but, you know, he did dramas, comedies, um, all kinds of movies. Um, there's been, uh, you know, here and there, you know, um, here there's been a little bit of stuff about him translated into English. Not much, you know. It, I think in, in South Korea he's definitely known a lot better. Um, here, unfortunately, he's, like, known for younger. <laughs> um, but uh, as, I, as we said... Um, 1967, that was the kaiju boom, um, which is uh, the term used for that year because it's where all of the major Japanese studios had at least one kaiju uh, production. Um, you know, uh, there was um, uh, King Kong Escapes, um, Gappa from uh, uh, Nikatsu, um, uh, Gulala at, uh, at, um, Shochiku. Um, there was, uh, Son of Godzilla. There was, um, Ultra 7 on TV. Um, I, I mean, it, that, that, it's called the Kaiju Boom because it's, it's literally when the, the genre was at its absolute most popular in Japan. You know, 1967 Japan for Kaiju is what, like, Every year <laughs> is like now for like Marvel or something, um, but uh, yeah, the kaiju boom um, saw the release of Yongeri. Um, the The name is a combination between uh, Yong, which is the, ja- uh, the I'm sorry, the, the the Korean word for dragon, and Bulgasari, the uh, folklore monster that we mentioned earlier. Um, this movie was made at a time when the Korean government was really cracking down on a lot of political content, um, basically to the point where most studios kind of had to stay afloat by making family films um, uh, that would be, you know, easy and non-controversial. And, um, of course, for Far East Entertainment, um, a kaiju movie was a pretty logical course of action from them. Even though Japanese media was banned at the time, you know, so they didn't weren't able to to easily see. You know, Ga- Godzilla and Gamera. Uh, oh, Gamera versus uh, Gauss was also the kaiju boom. I don't know how I how that slipped my mind, but they weren't able to easily see those, um, uh, if at all. Um, but they were still aware of how uh, many of them. You know, these movies from Toho and Daye. Um, how many of them were getting released internationally, especially being sold and shown uh, in the United States? Um, that was a big. Uh, appeal for them was getting a movie in the shown in America, um, uh, and uh, Yangri was originally conceived as a monster that would be a single-celled organism that would fall from space and grow larger and larger. Um, I guess maybe almost like Gulala, you know, in the X from outer space. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Far East did not have the. Uh, I guess, technical know-how. They didn't have a special effects department that could build suits and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us, I guess, how how they ended up getting around uh, that lack of expertise? Well, they did hire um, technicians from uh, Japan's Equus Productions effects house run by Kaiza Murase, who is awesome and designed a bunch of different Godzilla suits for, for Toho. Um, worked on uh, Mighty Peking, uh, Peking Man as well, and of course, Gamera suit maker uh, Masao Yage Yagi. Yeah, uh, if if you look at Yangari, 
if if you've ever looked at Yangari and thought he looks like he would fit in in a Gamera movie, like That's, you know yeah. the way the eyes and the horn light up and just kind of um, I guess more exaggerated, almost cartoonish features. The reason for that is because he was literally built by the same people. <laughs> Very re- reminiscent of like Baragon from Universe. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of Baragon in there. Uh, and then, you know, Toei had international distribution rights for the film, and it did see re- theatrical releases in West Germany and Italy. But the planned release was pulled from Japan, obviously, given kind of the tensions we talked about um, at the time. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I know that the, you know, we'll talk about this next part. I want to give it back to you because there's something I think you wanted to mention. Well, yeah, I, I mentioned, you know, up until the 2000s, Korean movies really weren't released here very often. Um, uh, but Yangri was the first Korean movie to, to get a wide release in the United States. Um, it wasn't a theatrical release. It was uh, picked up by American International and put straight onto TV in uh, 1969. Um, but, uh, you know, that, I mean, that, that, that's a pretty big deal still, um, you know, that uh, this movie has that relevance. Um, but <laughs> there is a downside to <laughs> to some of this. Uh, so the original Korean version is, is mostly lost. Uh, Far East uh, Entertainment was not experienced in ex- exporting their films. They basically shipped all the original film elements out when they came time for their international distribution. It's actually not even known like where the prints wound up. Um, Kim Ki-duk uh, kind of believes that they were probably sent to Japan, but... Because of this, uh, the only known complete version of the film is the English dubbed version. There is a 47-minute version of the Korean, uh, the, Cre- the original Korean film, um, but the widescreen version that we have now actually wasn't even found until 2003 when uh, MGM was looking through their material to release it to DVD. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I didn't realize that until you know I was, you know, researching some information for this podcast that. Uh, um, the just having a widescreen version, you know, wasn't really thought to be something we would get. But then, uh, you know, when they were putting out that DV, that old DVD in two thousand three, they they found a print um, that that was in widescreen, and that's what we have now. Um, sadly, the the Kino Lorber Blu Ray, I think, is already out of print. But uh, I would I would recommend people get a chance to check it out. Um, it really is a beautiful print. Yeah, it, it, the movie, the Blu Ray looks great, and um, our uh, uh, our friend Steve Rifle um, does a really good commentary on it, which is where we we got a lot of the information for this podcast. And you know, it's worth picking up if you run into it. Um, but uh, yeah, let, I guess I guess we can kind of get into um, the movie here. Um, I don't know uh, if you or I want to tackle a, uh, a plot <laughs> well, synopsis. This doesn't have to do the next film, though. So. <laughs> Oof. Well, the next one's going to be harder. <laughs> yeah. Let's. Uh, I mean, so, uh, let me let me take a stab at it. And okay. Then, uh, it's pretty straightforward. So so basically, uh, our movie starts with this kind of the after part of a, a wedding uh, and the wedding features an astronaut and he's leaving with his wife um, to kind of go on their honeymoon. And basically on their, their hunt on their, their first wedding night, uh, he gets a call to go back to work because he is supposed to be sent into space to basically monitor a nuclear test that's happening in the middle East. 
Um, is that a thing? I, I mean, maybe it is, but it, if it is, this is a practice that's completely unknown to me. Like, well, is there a reason why we would send someone to outer space just to watch a new? A I don't think test? that's how they would really do it. Because, like, I, I, I don't think so. Also, the the Middle East thing is pretty interesting because apparently that was actually the intention. I, I was thinking about it like during the watching the film, and it was like, why the Middle East? That seems so just not kind of in line with some of the stuff going on in, in Asia at the time. But um, yeah, it's, the, there's a nuclear test that they're supposed to watch uh, in the Middle East. And then the test actually triggers this gigantic earthquake. And then the earthquake basically moves towards the heart of uh, Korea. And essentially they're tracking this as it's happening. Um, eventually right along the, and this is information right on out of the commentary, but right along the 38th parallel, kind of the split between the, uh, South and North Korea, where it would be, uh, Yonggeri is actually where, where they first see him. And this is the, probably the funniest part of the movie is when the, the guy that's capturing the, the pictures of him, like they're driving down the road and in, inconspicuously, they just like go off the cliff for no reason. Their car blows up. And somehow that guy survives. Yeah, that, I, I don't even understand why that. <laughs> I don't understand why they yeah, crashed. Even like there was no reason for it. It wasn't like the monster showed up and like spooked them or something. It was just they, yeah, they just like fall off the side of the cliff. Anyway, I, I, just, this so, movie like, has a few things in it that I think they just did because of re- like just because reasons. Like, why does he have to go to space to watch a nuclear test? Like, reason. yeah, I, I think it's just because like sci-fi and outer space stuff was popular. And Korea didn't have a space program at the time, and so they also knew for an international market, like they were, they, I don't know, they probably thought it would they would make them seem cool if it seemed like they had a space program, and uh, and then this guy, they probably just wanted an excuse to like have a car blow up or something. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, it makes no sense. Well, but like the only thing I could figure was like maybe do see the earthquake, but like in the when you're watching it, like it's not there's there's no indication that the earthquake is still happening at that point. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, eventually he makes it to the authorities and he shows them the footage and they, they immediately decide to name the monster uh, Yonggeri based on some, you know, Korean fable. Um, and it's loosely connected to earthquakes. That, by the way, comes out of nowhere. Like there's no, like, everybody seems to know about this legend and that's the only time they mention it. And then from there we have the monster's name. Um, so eventually we come to Yonggeri sh- uh, attacking the city. And actually this is kind of the main rampage sequence of the film that happens kind of right in the middle. Um, and we also have, uh, I should have mentioned at the beginning, there's a young child named, uh, was it Icho? Icho, yeah. Yeah. So he is, uh, apparently he's got this little, like... His name like, is, I, I believe his name is Yong in the Korean script. But yeah, Icho. Yeah, like they, Icho. Uh, he decides to take this like thing that he found at a lab that basically shines a bright light that makes people itch, and he shines at people driving their car, and they almost die. Like they crash, and then they're like, "Oh, it's ha ha ha, it's not a big deal." Anyway, that'll come into play later on. Um, but he and a scientist kind of go and check this, check out the monster. They're trying to get close to him, and they're following him along his rampage. Eventually, uh, we learn that Yonggeri is actually trying to feed on gasoline and oil. Um, they also learned there's like a ammonia plant of some kind that's there and he gets exposed, younger, he gets exposed to ammonia. And once that happens, they realize, oh, he actually has a weakness to this. And so they rush to the lab to basically develop a weaponized version of it that they can drop on him. Um, he's attacked by, you know, missiles and the military and different things. But, um, that's kind of the, the main 
portions of the movie. And then by the end of it, we have what is uh, possibly maybe the most grotesque monster death of all time. I, I don't know. We'll have to. <laughs> they drop the ammonia on uh, young Green. He basically bleeds out of his anus and dies. And it's. Yeah, he's and like twitching. And <laughs> I, you know, like. That's that, up there with uh, Sky Don and Ultraman, who got yeah. like a, a, a helium literally shot up his ass and blown up like a balloon <laughs> and got shot down by uh, planes thinking he was target practice. Uh, Dodongo, who Ultraman yeah. poked out his eyes, eyes and rode yeah. him around like a, like a horse. Um, basically, outside of Ultraman... This is yeah, probably it's, it's, the it's, most messed up monster death you'll ever see. Especially because it, it like, goes on for a while <laughs> because of the twitching. He doesn't just, like, it's not just a little blood. Like, he bleeds very specifically from his butt and then twitches to death for, like, a few <laughs> minutes. Yeah, who, whoever is in the, uh, the suit really... Did really, a great job. Yeah, really <laughs> delivered the the suffering of this this poor this poor creature. Uh, I do know in the commentary, Steve pointed out that the intention seems to be that Youngery survives because you get that shot at the end where the kid's talking to everybody and basically is like wishing that they could just shoot him into space, and then you have that same uh, space capsule that you see at the beginning of the film shot at the end of the film. Yeah, in the dub. Uh, which again is the only surviving version. The kid is like, "Oh, I, it's. I just wish we didn't have to kill him, but I understand why." In the in the the original Korean script, um, the kid is asked by the reporters something about like, "What do you want next?" or something. And he's like, "I want the scientists to build a. Uh, I want the scientists to put Yangri in a ship and launch him into space, and I want my brother to have the biggest wedding of all time." And then, and then the movie ends with you know a shot of the ship like flying into space. So, yeah, I think the original intent was to imply that he didn't die, but the American dialogue uh, definitely changes that to I no, mean, he was killed I, I, horribly. That dude was twitching <laughs> to death, like he is. <laughs> Whether he lived or not, I'm not sure. I mean, the, that that doesn't really make that that sequence any less gruesome. Yeah, that is. Uh... Man, I, I think that's one of the things that everybody remembers about <laughs> about this movie. Is oh that yeah, um, Bird. When did you first see this movie? Because I, like I remember renting it from like a blockbuster, probably my local VHS place. A couple um, different. You know, I I'd, throughout my childhood as you know a kaiju fan. This is a movie that I saw referenced a lot. You know, it would someone it would get mentioned. You know, in passing, and you know a G fan or. You know, back in my day, uh, a lot of movies I saw were via bootleg video, so, you know, I'd see it listed in, you know, catalogs from different vendors. Um, but I didn't actually see it probably until I was in high school. I, I was probably, I don't know, I must have been between 14, 15 at the time. Maybe, a, maybe I don't know, between 13 and 15 probably. Middle school, high school age. Um uh, you know, I, I guess I, I, I wasn't super, like, it wasn't a, a movie that I was super curious enough to, like, track down, but then, um, uh, there was a video store that we had gotten a membership at that, uh, I don't know, was a little further away from the blockbusters and all that stuff, um, that I'd been through a hundred times, and they had a copy of it, and I'd rented it, and, um, 
I don't know. At the time, I I watched it and I, I I just kind of was like, I don't know. I was I was very meh on it. You know, I I think I watched it and at that point I had seen all the Godzilla movies. I'd seen all the Gamera movies, and I was just kind of like, this just kind of feels like uh, I don't know, like someone just watched all those and like just threw them all together into one movie, which it kind of still does. It's it's kind <laughs> of a mishmash of it's it's basically a Godzilla movie combined with a Gamera movie. Um, yeah, that's which, which I, 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 I found that kind of boring when I first saw it, but you know, now I, I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've kind of taken a little bit more of a shine to it these days. Um, uh, just as like a piece of dumb entertainment, but e- even then it, this, you know, this, this most recent viewing is probably the, maybe the third time in my whole life that I've watched it. I probably watched it when I rented it the one time, and then I probably watched it again um, when I got the... I don't think I watched it again until I got the Blu-ray. And then I didn't, probably didn't watch it again until this last time when I watched the Blu-ray again for this. So, I, yeah, it's still not a movie that I really go... I, I like it, but it's not one that I go back to much. Yeah, I, I know that I... Well, I feel like I rented it probably a few times when I was a kid from our local. Like we had a place called West Coast Video. It was either that or Blockbuster. And then uh, I, I it used to show on TV a fair amount, at least here it did. Um, it's a movie that stuck with me mainly. Uh, there's a couple really funny special effects sequences. One of which yeah. is uh, he, he Youngery can shoot a laser beam, basically very similar to Gauss. And it cuts this jeep in half, but there's a third. There's a very clear fifth wheel on one of the jeeps that keeps it because, like, there's there's a there's a actors actually in a real vehicle. It splits apart, and then they have three wheels on one and two on the other, so that, to make sure they don't fall over. That's a pretty funny sequence. That's the thing that I always remembered about it. And then the dancing sequence, which we'll, we'll talk about. Yeah, the time. dancing sequence. Yep, the the wheel, which you know, you'd think if they couldn't figure <laughs> out, you'd think they would be able to figure out that shot without having that wheel in the frame like in Gamera versus Gauss when he yeah. cuts the car open and you don't you don't see it from you know you don't see the bottom of the car I don't know why they did it that way yeah that was I, I think that's I mean a lot of that uh is just the inexperience of the 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 film yeah. crew it, I, it's part of I mean stuff like that is part of like what what I like about it like it's fun though. also like, the um <laughs> uh Yongari breeds actual fire you know it's not um Mm-hmm. A, a, an animated ray like Godzilla is more like Gamera, and every single time you see the nozzle of like the little flamethrower in the mouth, and, like yeah, every still. time he opens his mouth, which is also <laughs> pretty, there's no pretty way, funny. There's like no, uh, they, they don't even try to hide it. Like it's it's very clear what's going on there. I will say I do like the suit. Yeah, I, I, I like the suit quite a bit. Um, which makes it even it's it's a it's a pretty decent suit. Which is, I mean, it's Murase and Yagi. You know, they're 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 good at what they do. But I I still don't understand how they didn't get a. I I don't know what happened with the nozzle in the mouth. <laughs> um. So, what are your initial thoughts, just kind of about the movie? I mean, like, take me through what you thought about it when you first saw it and what you think about it today. Cause you um, mentioned there's a difference. Yeah. Well, when I thought, when I, when I first saw it, it just, I don't know. It, it just really didn't scratch really an itch. Like, uh, I think I had probably seen all the Godzillas and the Gamera's and, you know, I'd seen 
Gorgo and Gappa and Gulala and all that stuff by this time. So, um, so yeah, when I finally got around to seeing this movie I'd, I'd always heard of and never seen Yongari, um, I, I think I was probably expecting it to stand out a little bit more from those. Um, but yeah, it really does kind of feel like someone basically doing like a greatest hits of, you know, 60s kaiju cinema. Um, and that, that's kind of, pro- I, I, I would imagine that's probably what made it not that attractive to me back then. But now I kind of, um, uh, look at that as a little bit of, uh, kind of endearingly, you know, even though this was a movie that they made, you know, hoping to get it out to, you know, other countries and, and territories, um, you know, you got to remember, you know, Koreans had not seen a kaiju movie. Um, so it makes, it makes, it makes more sense that they would kind of try to, I guess, pack it full of, you know, as much, um, as, as much as they can. Um, uh, it, it, it still has kind of a, a little bit of the same problem the first Gamera movie has, where it's like, the monster is definitely a threat, and he's v- v- killing a lot of people. <laughs> but there's a kid that likes him, and because the kid likes him, the movie yeah. kind of positions itself to expect the audience to like him. And that's something about the original Gamera movie that it always feels very strange. But it, I, I think it. I think it's it's not as annoying in this as it is Gamera, and maybe it's because the kid. Even though the kid is a little irritating in this, he's not um, not a sociopath. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's not he's not a maniac like the yeah. kid in Gamera. So, so I think uh, I th- so I, I I would I would say I, I prefer this to the original Gamera. This is almost kind of like Gamera, a better version of the original Gamera in a, in a, in in a few ways because of that. Um, <laughs> And of course, now as an adult and knowing more about the history behind this movie and I guess the political climate between Japan and Korea, um, there's things I appreciate about it. Um, You know, I I think Kim Ki-duk and a lot of Koreans, understandably, you know, were very upset with the Japanese. And even though this movie used, um, you know, Japanese technicians um, and uh, effects... um, you know, it, it it is interesting to see kind of the, um, you know, there's a few things in here that are kind of pointed barbs at uh, at Japan. You know, um, uh, I think the most notable is um, when Yangri is rampaging through Seoul, he destroys um, the government general uh, building or a building that looks very much like that, which was um, basically an infamous building. Um, that was used by the Japanese occupation in Korea. And, you know, the Koreans had grown to really despise this building. Um, so seeing Yongari crush something that looked a lot like it was probably, you know, pretty gratifying. Um, the actual building was destroyed um, in uh, 1995 and 1996. Uh, so, um, and, st- and, and stuff like, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, the fact that... Um, Yongari emerges in the same village that the uh, armistice, the armistice uh, with uh, North and South Korea was signed. You know, so so that's kind of you know Yongri is literally a threat coming out of this split. 
you know, he's this threat from the north that's descending into South Korea to destroy it. Um, and uh, um, I know some of the, the scenes of, you know, the crowds fleeing uh, evoke imagery that uh, for Koreans would, would um, harken back to the Korean War. You know, similar to how scenes in Godzilla would um, reference the fire bombings or scenes in Cloverfield would, you know, be evocative of 9-11. Um, so, so there is some actual subtext and um, a little bit of meat there if you really, like, you know, know, I guess, the history of the time period. That as an adult, I like stuff like that, you know, especially, um, you know, this, this isn't the best movie or anything, but, uh, it, it, you know, nowadays modern movies don't, you know, modern movies seek to not have a lot of stuff like that. And I always think it's interesting when filmmakers take this very commercial mainstream project and sneak things like that through, you know, Honda was pretty infamous for doing things like that. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, we, well, you mentioned the, the crowd fleeing scenes. One thing this movie actually does pretty well that you don't actually see a ton of in, especially like Godzilla films, um, at least not a lot of them, is positioning people in the direct path of the monster's rampage and having them like interact with them. So like, there's a sequence where Yangari is like destroying a building and there's like bricks and different things being thrown to people and actually hitting them and they're falling over and different stuff. I actually thought that those sequences were really well done. Um, and you know, the other thing that I think is interesting is like I know um, the director uh, Kim Ki Duck was, was pretty disappointed when he first saw the suit because he wanted to. <laughs> I wonder why. But, like, if you think about it, though, when you watch it in this movie, I think the suit lends this undeniable charm that I yeah. don't know if you would have it if it was, like, overly scary. Because it wouldn't mesh well with the subplot of, you know, Icho and, like, you know, basically his interactions with the monster and, like, having him dance. You know, like, I, I don't know how you that. Have scene that. definitely wouldn't work with a more uh, scary-looking monster. Yeah, and they didn't have the budget or the or the time to go back and, and do a new suit, but like I actually think that worked out to their benefit in this particular case. I yeah, I, I would say so. I, I would say like, you know, Yongari is treated as a pretty even though he looks kinda silly, you know, he's treated as a pretty serious threat until like that like I mean the movie has some really strange tone issues. <laughs> <laughs> they give you whiplash and like Yeah, that that definitely is true. Um I really enjoyed watching it this last time. I know that it didn't stick with me as a kid necessarily, but I just kind of thought it was a goofy ripoff. Yeah. But like you said, like knowing the history behind it and also um, the color palette in this movie, like the, the set pieces are honestly, they're gorgeous. They may not be up to like Toho standards. There's some really cool stuff with, um, you know, lighting and uh, matte paintings and uh, oh, yeah. perspective and stuff that they do, you know, like, um, you know his you know his his first uh, emergence and uh, you know when he's drinking all the oil and and stuff like that there's some some really good stuff um used with you know some atmospheric stuff you know with you know smoke machines and and stuff like that that's that's done really well i think the sometimes the the perspective of like the composite shots don't always work but i also think like it 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 looks different a little bit different than some of the godzilla stuff mm -hmm. because they're you know, Subarai was such a master at framing shots that you don't always have that here. But, like, it lends this weird charm to it. Um, I love, I mean, I absolutely adore some of the set pieces in this movie. They're really colorful. Sometimes they're really dark. Um, 
the bridge, the bridge sequence, when like the bridge gets absolutely just annihilated right before you know Younger bites the dust, uh, that's a really cool piece. So there's a lot of like fun moments, and I think from like a Tokusatsu perspective, I think it 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 definitely has its merits. Um, and sorry, I totally lost my train of thought because I'm looking at my notes, and then I'm seeing you highlight stuff. This oh, I'm just I'm scene. just uh, ignore me. <laughs> you usually do anyway. It's fine. <laughs> um, couple. We have a couple anecdotes before we get into our uh, our rating here, but I know. Um, so some trivia that we have left. Uh, Korea didn't actually have South Korea didn't actually have a space program in 1967. Obviously, one shown in this film, but they didn't actually even launch their first satellite until what two, 2013? <laughs> yeah, less than ten years. So like, ago, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy to think about. And then we're gonna talk. I want to talk about. Um, I'm gonna pass this to you for this, but I want to talk about that that dance that we've been talking about for for some of the podcasts. Yeah, so the the scene where Icho is uh, quite literally physically torturing uh, <laughs> this poor beast, and he is scratching because he is in intense pain and trying to uh, scratch himself from this itching ray that this boy is uh, abusing him with. Um, the song he dances to is actually a surf rock rendition of uh, a song called. Uh, Ari Rang, Ari Rang. I'm there's a 99.9 percent chance I'm messing that uh, title up, um, but um, it's a it's an old Korean folk song, a very old song um, about love, loss, happiness. Um, however, in 1926, there was a famous uh, movie. Um, well, I guess famous if you're in, you know, South Korea. But there, there was a famous movie, um, a Korean movie in 1926, um, about a Korean man who is tortured by the Japanese for political protests. Um, and uh, that movie was named after that song, Arang. Um, whether that is a coincidence of some sort, or if it was another sly jab at the Japanese put in um, by uh, Kim Ki-duk... I don't know, um, but I, I, I thought that was an interesting tidbit of information, and, um, you know, considering stuff like, you know, oh, he's smashing this building that looks like this building everyone hated, you know, it, it's a, you know, since the movie does have things like that, um, and, uh, you know, the movie does kind of show, uh, I guess, post-occupation Korea quite a bit, and, um, uh, just other things that were in Korean culture at the time, like, you know, Seoul being this bustling metropolis and, um, you know, the, uh, uh, I guess, influx of sort of um, American uh, culture into Korea, you know, the cars, the fashions, stuff like that. Um, uh, there there are a lot of things that speak to the time period. So it's, it's interesting that um, this movie that is made, you know, to cash in on a Japanese genre that also is kind of angry at Japan would have uh, a song in it that uh, had its title used by a very famous anti-Japanese movie. Also, uh, Icho is like laughing at this poor monster that's not actually dancing. He's like writhing in agony. Yeah. He's kind of doing the twist. It's it's a fun, like... You know what? That's one of those moments where, like, 
sometimes in a gamer film, you'll have these like sequences that sort of wear out their welcome. It's so short and so like catchy that I couldn't help but love that you know thirty second, forty five second little thing that was going on. It was I, I thought that was really kind of charming. It's one of those things like uh, in Gamera versus Zegra when he like plays his own theme song <laughs> on Zegra. Like it's one of those things that just happens and you just kind of question everything. Um, uh, yeah, but it, it I you know. I had a lot of fun watching this. I actually watched it with Landon. Um, I don't think he was quite as taken to it as I was, but um, that's how did we watch this? Is how how I don't know. It seems like wrong that we like this movie more now than we did as kids. Yes, like, uh, what, I, I don't. I don't know if that means like well, we're think, messed up or <laughs> or but what. I, also I don't think, know. Like, like this movie. I mean, it, it's. For 1967, I guess it was one of the most successful films. It was one of like 14 that sold. I, I thought I, I'm going to misquote Steve Rifle on this, but I think they said it was like a hundred thousand tickets or something like mm. that. Um, so really successful for its time, but also like if you're watching it as an adult now and you have an understanding of like how kind of a big deal this was, I think it plays into how much you might value what they were able to accomplish versus like just watching it for what it is and trying to say if you like it or not. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, no, it, it did do pretty well. You know, obviously, its international ambitions uh, did not go as planned. You know, it only got theatrical release in a few countries. Here, it just came to TV and Japan. Its release got you know completely scrapped. Um, it uh, bankrupt the studio that made <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I, even though it did pretty good, um, I, you know, I'm I don't know what their the studio's business practices were, but, uh, you know, apparently they were kind of banking on this to help get them, um, you know, I guess they had some, a lot of back tax debt that they needed to pay off and they were kind of relying on this movie to, uh, to pull it through. But, um, even though it was a pretty decent success, it just wasn't enough to save them. And, uh, you know, they went, they ended up going bankrupt shortly after, um, um, but yeah, as a movie, it's, you know, story-wise, it, it's definitely more on the generic end of, you know, kaiju cinema. It's very kind of paint-by-numbers, but there's um, there's a, a, an interesting, it, it, you know, if, if, you, if you do know a little bit about um, the, the, the time period it was made and the country it was made, um, there, there are some uh, neat things to look out for that make it uh, pretty interesting to watch. Um, so it it has it does have some novelty value there and um uh yeah I mean it, it it's it's a movie that I I I have a decent amount of um fun with but it's uh you know it's not a favorite or anything Yeah and I think we're going to get to our rating here in a second but I think um we have a lot of films that do the same kind of stuff better already Mhm yeah but, you know, again, this is, like, a very inexperienced Korean crew doing their best effort to, to basically take tokusatsu, something that they weren't, you know, doing a ton of, and make it their own. And, like, I like a lot of the things about this film. Um, so what's a... How many... Uh, Bleeding monster <laughs> anuses? <laughs> Out of five. Or, or pointless visits to space to yeah. watch a nuclear test out of five 
Um, it's a three. It's a good three. Um, you know, I don't consider a three out of five a bad rating. I, 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 I think that uh, for uh, for kaiju diehards, I think it's definitely worth watching. If I was, say, you know, if someone was like, give me, you know, ten, even twenty kaiju movies to watch, you know, this probably wouldn't make the cut. No, but uh, <laughs> it's an interesting little movie, and um, uh, especially if you if if you know, you know uh, how it speaks to South Korean culture at the time it was made. It, it that that kind of adds a little cherry on top because there are some some things to pick up on it. There is a little bit of subtext there, and there is a little bit of thoughtfulness put into the direction that um, you might not otherwise know. You know that doesn't make it a good movie or a great one, but um, you know it makes it an uh, interesting viewing experience. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it takes a little long to to get going, but once it does, I you know it it's a pretty enjoyable. Yeah, I'm also at a three, and it's like, and what hour and twenty minutes less than that, and mm-hmm. I think it's a fun little diversion, especially if you love this kind of stuff. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, again, there's better movies out there, but I think this has this very undeniable charm that if you took you know less than ninety minutes of your day and watched it, you, you're not you're not going to regret it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if 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 you want to, you know, kind of watch it along with, you know, to to laugh, you know, a little bit, you know, there's a mystery science theater episode. I mean, is that any good? By the way, I have not seen that one. Um, it's it, it's it's pretty decent. Um, as far as that season goes, um, you know, it's better than <laughs> it's better than you know the Reptilicus one that I you know I wasn't super hot yeah. on that one, even though that movie should be more, you know, prime for mystery science theater. But um, oh, that's another one we're probably gonna have to get to soon. Um, anyway, uh, Yongari would live on, Matt. Sort of, kind of, believe it or not. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so now we get into the, uh, not a remake, I guess it's sort of a reboot, uh, which is Yongari, 1999, this time with an extra G in the middle, just because, um, uh, and, uh, stateside, this movie is known as Reptilian, um, for whatever reason, uh, this movie is a whole big basket of worms, uh, basket of worms, can of worms. Well, yeah, it's, there's so many worms that is no longer a can. (laughs) It is a basket. Um, I think this, I think having to reckon with this movie is probably part of why we didn't talk about Yongari right away. Um, that definitely is part of it. Uh, so reptilian is something, um, so to, I guess, put this movie into some perspective, um, it's very necessary to know about the director, Hyung Rae Shim. Shim is a very odd man um uh, he he's very difficult to describe i would say um he's sort of i always thought of him as someone in the industry that somehow keeps failing upwards 
Like, if you know, a, if, if you've ever known a guy who, like, you know, at work or whatever, who's just sucked at their job and, like, keeps <laughs> getting bigger promotions with more responsibilities and more and more, like, he's like a movie version of that. I, I, like I said, I don't know how else to describe him. He, he, he just continuously fails upwards. And whenever he should be completely done, he, just life finds a way for this guy. Uh, so who is he? I guess is a big, uh, a big. That's a big question uh, for a big personality. Um, he is most famous as a comedian, um, and uh, he was a, a, a very big, very popular comedic actor in South Korea. Um, he was most famous for a recurring character he called. Uh, or that he had played in uh, a, a series of movies and would make appearances as this character called Youngu. Um, I mean, there were a lot of other things he did. Uh, there was an eight movie series, uh, like superhero series that he was in um, as well. Uh, and um, so Youngu, though, is is you know the character that he's probably most known for. Um, you know, I would compare it to you know some kind of you know think of. Comedic actors here who have their own um, character that they'll, you know, make appearances. At. I mean, I would say, like, Ernest or, like, Medea or something. Like, Youngu was, was kind of, you know, a character like that that would have a series of films and make appearances and just basically that, like, he is known as Youngu. Um, now, in 1993 is when he started entering directing. Um, and, uh, you know, his first movie that he directed was a Youngu movie called Youngu and Dinosaur Zuzu. Um, the dinosaur in the movie named, dinosaur, or named Zuzu looked a lot like Yongari, you know, uh, to the point where I think some uh, people have tried to pass it off as some, you know, sequel or tie-in. It's not, you know, I think it's just a visual homage. Because one thing to know about Shim is he is a huge kaiju and tokusatsu fan. And uh, as a South Korean, of course, um, a movie that was uh, important to him was Yongari. Um, so uh, in uh, 93, you know, um, when he made this movie, he also established his own studio, Yonggu Art Movies. Um, and uh, like most things Shim would do, uh, he set up this studio with absolutely no experience or preparation. <laughs> mm. um, and he followed that up with other effects-driven movies like uh, Youngu and the Space Monster, Tyranno's Claw, which was a parody of One Million Years B.C., and some others. Um, like I said, very f famous comedic actor. He also, so he also played uh, Master Roshi in the 1990 Dragon Ball movie. So, um, we have talked about on this podcast a lot about how if you are a fan of a property, it doesn't necessarily mean you should be directing, uh, <laughs> directing it or writing it or doing anything with it. Sometimes fans are really not the people that you want in charge. Um, combine that with Shim's just general ineptness as a director and a businessman, <laughs> and you have a recipe for disaster. Um, so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about just how um, you know how he uh, got into I guess a Yongari reboot and what uh, you know kind of what went into making this uh, thing. <laughs> uh, so in the mid nineties, uh, Young Arts bought the rights to the Yongari character for the remake, 
And I, I guess supposedly Shim still had the rights, even like as a few years ago. Um, but from the start, it was basically advertising a way to cash in on the 98 Godzilla film. And actually, I think you can see this, like the reptilian poster uh, is like the, basically Godzilla's face, Yon face in like New York City. Basically, it, it's kind of how they at least comes across to me. Um, and then at the Cannes Film Festival, they were um, looking for investors um, they had posters with Yongari 1998, um, and think bigger, uh, size does matter ring a bell. So like, I, could, could they be any more obvious about the cash in there? Um, so with a budget of, I guess, 13.5 million, this was actually the most expensive Korean film ever made at the time. <laughs> uh, which I, I guess Shim loved to talk about that. So, um, and then Yonggu Arts PR campaign was spent largely on promoting the film as comparable to like Independence Day and Lord of the Rings. And I can tell you right now that <laughs> not what this movie is. E- yeah. Even by the standards of the time period, uh, this is not anywhere close. And it, it, it's pretty that. hilarious to look at the <laughs> interviews that were done with, you know, the producers and stuff around the time when they say, yeah, I think it's just as good. I think it looks just as good as the CG in Hollywood, I think it. I think you could put this right next to you know Independence Day and Jurassic Park, and it's like, well, I, either these people are insane or they are just very comfortable lying through their teeth. Well, um, yeah, it's got fraction of the budget of any of those things, and <laughs> it was made on basically like a PlayStation Two. So yeah, um, and and you know, I, yeah, I mean, anyone that's seen clips of the CG in this is is. Jeez, I don't even know. I mean, if you, if you remember kind of the tail end of, you know, Super Nintendo when they were doing more 3D-based games, it almost looks like... Yeah, there's a fine line between some of that and this. Like, it, it it's really bad. Like, the creatures are completely textureless. They're, they're almost transparent. Um, and what's crazy is that the version that we have seen, the only version that has come out anywhere besides the original 1999 theatrical run, is a improved version. So let me kind of describe that to you. Um, so the movie was released in South Korea in 1999, and um, for whatever reason... Um, I, Shim just, I don't know, everything about this movie took longer than it should have. <laughs> um, and uh, if, if you watch the documentary Yongari Chronicle Project, which, you know, isn't the best documentary, but there are some, you know, pretty fascinating interview snippets in it um, that the director, Evan, managed to get. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm just going to kind of tangent a little bit into Shim as a director because, um, Matt, I know you would at least watch part of that documentary. I watched the whole you, thing. Okay. So, so you'll remember some of these stories that some of these actors said and, and, and you know, they, those were probably pretty easy interviews to conduct because, uh, this movie, we, we failed to mention another part of this being, you know, the big deal, big budget, biggest Korean movie ever was that it was shot in English with American actors, um, 
because it was very specifically made for an international audience. Um, if Japanese attempts at that kind of broad international appeal are uh, a lesson to learn, you know, if you look at Gunhead, Sayonara Jupiter, Godzilla Final Wars, um, it, they never, it never ends up right. But uh, this was very similar in that it was a movie that was designed to be shown everywhere across the entire world in theaters and be a huge deal, and it wasn't because the movie wasn't, it wasn't very good. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, in, this, in this documentary, some of the actors talk about working with Shim, and they say, you know, he, he's a very passionate filmmaker, but he doesn't know how to make a movie. Um, there's one story about um, the one American actor that plays the, uh, the reporter. He tells a story about, you know, they were doing the scene and Shim was shooting the movie in storyboard order, which means like, let's say for example, me and Matt are in a scene together and we're having a conversation and there's a shot of the two of us sitting across from each other talking. So we would say our lines in that shot of us together. And then let's say Shim is directing us. He would say cut, then he would move the camera and all the equipment around the two of us to put everything in front of Matt because the next <laughs> shot is Matt asking me a question. So they would have Matt ask the question, then move all the stuff again around to the other side to shoot me answering his question. So it's quite literally, they were, it was like they were making the movie, they were like editing the movie in camera as it goes. And and this actor was like, what are you doing? Like, movies are supposed to be made, like, in editing? Like, later? Like, what are you doing? And, and, and then they were just like, uh, oh. <laughs> and, and, like, that, that's s such a waste of time. Because, you know, I, I think some people don't realize how much equipment needs to be there to shoot something. You know, you need lighting. You need, you know, if the camera is on a dolly, you need a whole track for that dolly. You need apple car apple crates um, for lifts. You need all kinds of stuff. Boom mics. And just to imagine having to move that stuff constantly, I, like, I don't know who would do that. It, it's how, like, you know, when you're 13 and you get your first camcorder, it's how you make a movie. It's not how a professional film with a $13 million budget is supposed to work. Um, and then I, I guess he was also just like a big asshole. Like he was a, <laughs> yeah, like he was a dictator. Someone compared him to a dictator, uh, on set. Like there was a, a, a production assistant that like forgot something and, uh, you know, it, it had to delay a shoot for a little bit. And like Shim made him like literally stand in a, in a, a, a a, a puddle of mud and <laughs> with his back turned to it's like so so i mean like i said this guy is hard to he's he's a crazy person the man is crazy i think there was a they said something about they had like 64 cuts one day when he was filming <laughs> so so imagine like you're having a, a you know a conversation with somebody you ask them a question they say yes and you're having to like move the <laughs> move it around for them to say the word yes. <laughs> like, that's just... It, it, it's a completely asinine yeah, way of making a movie. 
Um, so I guess that's just kind of a, a tangent to explain just this guy is not only crazy, but he is incompetent. So everything seemed to take longer than it really should have. So when the movie had to meet its deadline for its 1999 theatrical release, it, it came out in a wide release in Korea with unfinished special effects. The movie that for several years now had been promising to be the biggest, best Korean spectacle blockbuster of all time that would be comparable to Independence Day came out <laughs> with unfinished special effects. Um, That's amazing. Can which you, they like, already look... Ext- the, the, the finished version looks extremely unfinished. So the, the, the fact that it came out looking worse is crazy. Um, so anyway, the, the, after that original theatrical release, it did not see a home video release or anything because they sunk more money into it to not only finish the effects, but also do some reshoots. Um, there was nine minutes added to the movie, including um, the scenes of the aliens that look like little action figures talking to each other. Um, that was all added. Um, and then it was re-released in 2001. Like I said, that 1999 version has never been made available outside of that theatrical run. Um, some footage of it can be seen. There's a tie-in music video for a pop song that was released with the movie. Um, so there, uh, you can see some of those. Uh, you can also see a couple other um, comparisons in that documentary we mentioned um, uh, of, you know, you know, just scenes that were reshot for whatever reason, you know, to look fancier or, you know, uh, uh, some of the, like, government building scenes were reshot with, like, I, the set looks, like, mildly more detailed. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, one common misconception is that, uh, and, and I, I've seen less of it within the last couple years, probably since that documentary came out, um, but for a very long time, the narrative and I don't know if it's just mistranslation or whatever. You know how in the, in the kaiju fandom, it doesn't take much to start a rumor and have it just get widely adopted as fact. Um, we've, we've tried our best to fight very much against, <laughs> against those. Um, but yeah, for a very long time, the narrative was that the original 99 ver- 1999 version was done with uh, Yongari and then the enemy monster Psychor as men in suits. Now, it is true that suits for those monsters were built, and the original version had a couple shots that used those suits. It was only a few shots. It was not throughout the entire film. Um, and... Uh, so they were not predominantly featured. Um, however, those very few shots of those suits, which are not bad, um, were cut um, for the, the the 2001 version. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I the, the rumor mill has been crazy. I've heard everything from it, it used to be all people in suits to it used to have all <laughs> Korean actors and then they were replaced by <laughs> Americans. There's been all kinds of crazy stuff about said about this movie over the years. So, you know, a little bit of myth busting is, is in order here. Um, and then, uh, yeah, 2001 is also when we saw it here where Sony put it out as reptilian. And yeah, you look at the DVD box, you know, everything from the font to the, 
the the cover everything about it is very much you know it, it, they released it as basically a mockbuster of the 98 Godzilla several years later and <laughs> as a mockbuster of their own movie that's that's wild to think about by the that way that is really strange i mean at the yeah. time it i don't know can you do that can you <laughs> I, I don't know that that's i don't know sony does a lot of crazy things but that that is up there um i still can't get over the fact that they went to the con film festival and were like this is this is like independence day yeah <laughs> i just can't even no i don't know i mean i even like i said even the finished version that we have available today is like even by 1999 2001 <laughs> standards like it is bad CG. Like yeah. it is. I, I love. I love in the notes. Your comment just says the the original version in 1999. The unfinished special effects were unbelievably worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the upgraded version is some of the worst CG you'll ever see. Uh, yeah, I mean it's pretty fluid. You know, the the only thing separating it from like an asylum movie is that the monsters have more animation. You know, they're not recycling the same shots over and over. Although they do that a couple they times. They do that. So they, yeah, they yeah they do that a couple times. But overall, the monsters uh, they have a, a, a wider range of motion than than what you would see in an asylum movie. But I, I mean, other than that, I mean, <laughs> yeah. He was like in a, everything else about this honestly felt very much like an asylum. The movie. only the things acting. that separate it from the asylum are, like I said, a, a wider range for the monsters and um, the use of miniature buildings and like practical explosions and stuff. That's it. Everything about this is very asylum. On the asylum scale, it's not as bad as. You might think. I don't know. We'll, we'll, I guess we'll kind of use that as segue into our review, which I guess, I guess I have to step up to the plate and try to do a summary of this. Godspeed. Um, I mean, the movie makes no sense, but it, it's fa- what is there is fairly straightforward. In that, I don't know. I'll just try it. So there is a uh, archaeological dig, um, and going on around this gigantic monster skeleton that is a, uh, I don't know, it's like 500 times the size of a T-Rex, I think they say. Uh, something like that. Anyway, it's, it's big. Um, and uh, this scientist is, uh, like, he wants to be the person that has discovered this monster, Yongari, and he wants to get rich and famous off that discovery, and uh, to the point where, you know, the skeleton starts doing really strange things that aren't really explained in the movie. But, like, I don't know, at, at night, the skeleton, like, electrocutes people for some reason. Anyway, people end up dying. And, and you know, the, 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 ones, the, the evil scientist guy is like, oh, yeah, like, you know, he's basically, like, covering up these deaths. And, you know, he's using illegal immigrants, um, you know to kind of get around, uh, you know, labor issues. You know, he can work them to death, literally. Um, and, 
Um, he, uh, uh, and then there's, uh, another scientist, I forget these people's names, so I'll just call him good scientist. It doesn't matter. Scientist one. But, uh, yes, good scientist is an old guy, uh, played, um, by the, uh, the same actor that played, uh, old Ryan <laughs> in, uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, which he did, like, right before, imagine, imagine going, like, imagine your, like, year of work is, like, you're playing old, the old Ryan and Saving Private Ryan being directed by Steven Spielberg to going, I, I mean, I'm assuming all these guys were just like, oh, it's a free vacation to South Korea, why not? But imagine, like, that's your work day followed by showing up on the set of this movie, being run by an absolute maniac who doesn't know what he's doing. Um, anyway, that's Harrison Young, who's the closest thing this movie has to, like, a real actor. Um, yeah. He's in um, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, yeah, throughout the 90s, and, uh, you know, he, he showed up in a lot of things. Um, uh, his, his first thing uh, on his IMDb is an uncredited role in Taxi Driver, in 1973 and then yeah throughout the 90s he would show up in a lot of on a lot of tv and a lot of low budget and mid-budget stuff um yeah you know so not a star but an actor that would be in a lot of high profile things and would really kind of really i don't know seem to really bring his best um so yeah that's why i said he's the closest thing to like a real actor i guess he the last thing he was in before he died well, I guess he died in 2005, but he has a credit for Spy Kids. I don't know. Anyway, um, so he shows up, and uh, he is like a disgraced scientist um, because he found all these alien hieroglyphics and stuff. And so uh, so for whatever reason, um, evil scientist guy uh, wants to resurrect Yongari, um, I am not sure. Anyway, while all this nonsense is going on, aliens <laughs> show up, uh, played by what looks like action figures, and um, the aliens are talking to each other, and they want to invade Earth for reasons that they never say. And their first plan to invade Earth is to resurrect Yongari. So they shoot a ray down and resurrect Yongari. This has nothing to do with uh, the one guy wanting to become rich and famous from Yongari. Uh, and so, I don't know. When when Yongari wakes up, the evil scientist guy says, you know, he's like, I can, I can talk to him. I can control him. And he's like talking to Yongari, and he's like, I made you! And I don't, I don't understand any of that at all. I, I, do you? There's, I mean... I mean, there's a that, lot of stuff I don't understand in this I have scene. to be honest. Like, that is the movie. Like, there's another monster at the end, but, like, I... I okay. It's like, a movie where things happen, and, like, the movie is telling me that these things are happening, but, like, I never understand why they're happening. Um, so, well, any- <laughs> so, anyway, so, I mean, from that point on, the movie is pretty straightforward, because it's really just Yongari... He wakes up, and I, 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 the, the dig site is in Southeast Asia, but then he attacks L.A. Um, the aliens, like, teleport him there. Now, how, the, how our main characters get there so quick, I don't understand. Um, anyway, 
So, uh, good scientist um, and, uh, you know, plucky young female scientist kind of team up. And by team up, I mean they just hang out in a government facility and watch things <laughs> and deliver exposition all day. Um, and yeah, old scientist, his whole thing is that uh, he, he uh, in his exiled years as a disgraced scientist, he met a, a Korean shaman who predicted that this would happen. Now, why this man of science just believes the, this prophecy by this guy, I don't know. He never says. He's just like, I met this guy, and he said there's a prophecy, and it's going to happen. So he's running around saying, like, oh, this is the prophecy that's fulfilled. Is this monster Yongari coming to wipe us all out? But I don't know how that relates to... I guess it's part of the alien hieroglyphics. I don't know. I don't know what the shaman has to do with the aliens or how, I don't know where any of these plot threads intersect. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so, so uh, Yongari goes to Korea and wrecks a bunch of stuff. And then, um, uh, you know, the military is uh, getting upset because there's this extra secret agency that mon monitors alien activity, and they had a feeling this might happen. And so the military uh, is yelling at, like, the egghead guy from that agency. Um, and to sort of stop Yongari, you know, in typical kaiju movie fashion, regular tanks, helicopters aren't doing anything. So for some reason, they're like, we're going to dispatch a team of soldiers on jetpacks? Um, and, I, and the jetpack sequence is, it not only lasts way too long, but it looks ridiculous. It looks like a Tim and Eric skit or something. Uh, but it's also kind of awesome <laughs> in how, how bad it is. Yeah, I, like it, it's, it's the high, it's probably the highlight of the movie. Would you watch like Tim and Eric fight Yongari on those jetpacks? I would. Yeah. I mean, it's, it would look like this, but yeah, I definitely would. <laughs> Um, so anyway, the, the, so the, they find out that he's being controlled by a little crystal device or something in his head. So the guys in the jetpacks are trying to take that out and they can't, um, the one guy, uh, leading the jetpack, uh, group, um, is like compared to, uh, like, uh, this guy makes Godzilla look like a big pussy. And th this movie is riddled with an insane dialogue that's absolutely cringe. Like, like that's one of the better examples of dialogue in this movie. Um, anyway, uh, so one of them ends up suicide bombing into Yongari's head to take out the device, and then immediately Yongari, uh, like, saves people from a building that's about to topple over. So um, everyone's like, oh, hey, yay, he's good. And so then they have to stop the government because the president has uh, ordered a nuclear attack on Yongari, so they have to, like stop that and then the aliens are like oh crap they uh we don't control him anymore um so let's uh implement you know our plan b or whatever which is this monster psychor which is kind of a he's got like six legs and little like lobster claws um why they didn't just use that from the use beginning. him from the beginning <laughs> i don't know um, like I said, the movie makes absolutely no sense, um, in, in a lot of aspects, but that, that's definitely one of them. 
Um, so then Yongari and Sycor fight. Um, Yongari kills Sycor, and then everyone's like, yay, he saved us all. And then, uh, and then the next scene is like the next morning, and they're like, oh, great job, guys. And then they show Yongari being like airlifted with balloons off to like, <laughs> they say they found like a desert or an island that he can live on peacefully, and then that's that's it. The aliens don't die. They're like, "Oh crap, that sucked." We'll we'll be back, and then um, they don't come back because they never made the sequel. <laughs> and then, so um, that is reptilian or yongari or. For whatever reason, it's called Reptile 2001 at the moment on IMDb. But anyway, that's our Yongari reboot, remake thing. Um, uh, again, I, well, it, it, I mean, it, it's very much like, I mean, there's some design elements that are sort of similar to the original Yongari, but... Uh, he has a horn on his nose. Yeah, right. Horn on the nose. That's like it. But it, yeah, it's it's very much a Yongari in name only thing. Which again, uh, this this was made by someone who uh, had a, a great uh, affection and influence from the original movie. So, uh, like I said, this isn't proof that uh, that you know fandom equals uh, competence or anything. Imagine. Uh, like uh, imagine an asylum movie, but also an asylum movie that was directed by like this absolute maniac that every single time that you needed a new shot, you had to reposition all the cameras and you had 15 or 16 hour days, which is what happened in this. I, and, and the final product being what it is. Um, this it's a bad movie. I do think there is an audience for this. If you have like, friends that are just looking for something that's really, really stupid and you can just make fun of the whole time. I think in that setting, this movie could work. I think absolutely. It. Absolutely. Um, I said this in the message chat that we're in. Uh, I mean, I have not seen this movie very often because why would I? Um, I, I, the first time I, I, I had known about it for a long time, obviously, you know, when it was in production, um, you know, it would get mentioned in fanzines and, and articles and stuff. But uh, uh, when it came out, um, I, don't, I didn't rent it right away. I didn't see it until it aired on the Sci-Fi Channel, um, probably around the same year it came out. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know, it was on late at night. I programmed the VCR and taped it. So that, the only copy I have of it is actually, to this day, is that recording. <laughs> Um, from like 2001 or whatever, and uh, I mean, I I I'd heard it was bad, and I'd watched it, and I, I I this is 2001 me, so I'm probably like 15, 16, um, and I I I was absolutely flabbergasted at at what I was watching, and especially like I'm old enough to remember, you know, it being touted as this, you know, big spectacle event movie and it was this it was this and um so i hated it i i struggle to remember if i had watched it since i might have watched it i i don't know if i watched it from beginning to end since 
that sci-fi channel airing. I, I know that I've probably seen bits and pieces of it, like on the in-house channel at a G-Fest or whatever. Um, but this was my first time probably since then actually sitting down and watching it. And in the years since, uh, I would say even in the years since doing this podcast, I have been forced to mildly rethink my evaluation of reptilian (laughs) because I had always thought of this as the genre does not get worse than this. And in doing this podcast, um, I had to, there were a couple things that I had to watch that I had not watched previously. Uh, Notably are a lot of the Kong exploitation movies. Oh yeah. yeah. That, um, that was a blind spot for me in doing this podcast. Outside of Mighty, Pe- Mighty Peking Man, I really don't think I'd seen any of them. And so uh, having seen Ape and the Mighty Gorga and um, what's, that? <laughs> what's that piece of shit? <laughs> Queen Kong, is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, Queen Kong. Uh, and then combine that with some of the very recent kind of independent VOD backyard type things that have come out, you know, Dragon Lizard Lord and Zilla Foot, Conga Zilla Foot, TNT. Conga TNT. <laughs> I can no longer say that this is the worst. Um, I, I mean, I, I would watch this over Queen Kong. I would watch this over Zilla Foot. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that that's kind of crazy to say because this was always kind of bottom of the barrel for me. Uh, but um, uh, now, having watched so many more mo- bad movies and just so many more movies in my life since two thousand one, you know, when I first saw this, I've seen worse outside of the kaiju genre as well. And so I, you know, I, I kind of was like, you know what? There's actually a little bit of enjoyment in a so bad it's good kind of way. Mostly the jetpack sequence. I, 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 have, I have taken a liking to the jetpack sequence. <laughs> that, that sequence is, I, I did laugh. Yeah. And, okay, I have, I have a question though. If this were not a very self, if this were not made by someone who was very self-serious and wanted to like, make it a real film uh, and didn't, you know, tout it all over the place that he was making something that could rival, you know, independence day. Uh, and it was actually made by the asylum. Would you feel differently about your rating? Cause I think I would. Uh, this is the, when the asylum is, <laughs> I don't want to say good. When the <laughs> asylum is firing on more than one cylinder, you get movies out of them like Yongari. Yes. Um, I think Yongari, it represents, it's not an Asylum movie, but it, it, it's representative of what the better Asylum movies are like. I wouldn't put it up there with my favorite Asylum movies, but it, it, it's, it's equal to like, it's not, it's not equal to the A tier of Asylum stuff, but it's, it's equal to like the B tier, you know, the... The, 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 you know, so, so, so I can't, I can't endorse an absolutely hateful 
viewpoint of this movie the way that I used to. Yeah, that's sort of where I was going with it because uh, it's listen. This is a, this is a terrible movie. Like you could give it a zero, and I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. But there are some really funny moments. You mentioned the jetpack, and like sort of the inexplicableness of everything that happens. Here's the other thing: the uh, quote-unquote Godzilla is a pussy line only works in the context of it being like an asylum film because you know it's not taking itself seriously. And at that point, it makes you laugh instead of cringe, or maybe both. But like, you're still cackling at how stupid and irreverent and dumb and on the nose it there, is. There's First, more cringe-worthy dialogue in this too. Oh, like well, uh, the, there's a the guy. I think it's when Psychor shows up. The guy says, "If that thing were any meaner, I would mistake it for my wife." Oh yeah, that Just is like, like boomer humor at and, its. Uh, and then and then there's another part where the reporter character who just drops out of the movie entirely after the first act, which we'll actually talk about why um, in, a mi- in, a, in a few minutes. But uh, he has a part where he's sitting on a bed and he's just talking to nobody. And he says, let's see here. <laughs> he says, um, this is too weird. I got this crazy-ass control freak professor, a fanatic old man that should be doing tours in a museum here, a cute bitchy chick... More bodies than a Tarantino flick and a 200 million year old big ass lizard. And he says that to himself before another character walks in and starts talking to him. I don't know, like, I, who, like, I, I, who? Listen, would, that is what the storyboard said they had to film that day. So that, <laughs> that's no one would, no one said, no one talks like that. <laughs> it's, uh, there's there's also like this movie can be uncomfortable at times too. You mentioned like the whole thing where the the evil scientist guy is like he's basically using uh illegal quote unquote aliens to like do all the work, right? The, these people that ha- you know, he's forcing them to like work until they literally die. That whole thing's pretty uncomfortable. Uh <laughs> mainly because he it's, I don't know if you if you watch the documentary, and I just have to bring this up. There's also this bit where whoever I don't know who's behind the camera. Like I have no idea who was actually filming that documentary. Yeah. So so this is uh, you're you're referring to footage on set footage that was yes. like being during the the making of the movie that then was used in the this documentary that we've, yes. we've been talking about. Right, and there's like this every time any woman comes up in this in this on set, this dude is like making really uncomfortable comments towards them and like it's not just once or twice like it's just any time any female is present and it's just so like it would it makes your skin crawl <laughs> honestly like it really it was really upsetting so you take that and you see like the stuff on the set and then you see this guy talking to these people that he's just like using them as labor and they're dying nobody seems to care about it like it was just super uncomfortable I don't uh, think that was that that wasn't Shim make, no, do, shooting that footage and making those comments. But Shim is very much he. I, I, the, he's got to be like the that. Uh, he's probably like that the evil scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Just from it's how like it working, sounds like he was working treating people, people to the bone. Yeah. This I, anyway, all of those things aside, 
the the funnier moments in the film, like being able to poke fun at how bad and like the CG is just. I mean, th- this it really is like PlayStation Two grade, uh, Nintendo GameCube. It's it's just terrible, and they do reuse a couple different shots a few different times. There are some miniatures. Actually, the thing that I liked about this movie, aside from some of the un- unintentional comedy, uh, the miniatures when they are used, they were fun. Like I, you know, I appreciate the fact that it wasn't all CG. Um, That's about as nice as I can be about. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. When I say I was forced to reevaluate it, I'm not saying like, oh, I think it's good now, and I think like it, it's easily on the. In the realm of kaiju movies made for more than, I'll I'll be generous. I'll say in the realm of kaiju movies made for more than eight million dollars, current adjusted for inflation, it's probably the worst. Yeah. Now kaiju movies ever, it's not looking. You know, it's looking a little more favorable compared to some of the stuff we've had to watch. Uh, but it's still a, a, a steaming pile that I, you know, I yeah. wouldn't recommend for a reason other than to make fun of it. So uh, we're going to get to our rating here, but I think we have some additional trivia that we were going to talk through. Uh, so I know there was a detail, there's a detail, geez, deleted uh, subplot where Bud Black, he's the reporter character. Uh, he steals a disc with information about the aliens on it. And he was actually going to go back to the cave with the alien fossils. Um, I guess these reanimated fossils were supposed to be the villains in the sequel film that we never saw. And it would also have Youngery fighting a mecha Youngery. Bird, would you have been excited to watch that movie? I, no. I mean, I, oh. I, this is a franchise that I'm... Yeah, it needs know, to I'm, die. I, I'm not torn up about it <laughs> not... If someone wants to take a fresh new approach to a Yongari movie, go for it. But I, I don't need we don't need more of this and keep I don't know if he has the rights now. I know he, he had the rights, you know, as of recently, but keep him away from any every anything ever. Um uh and, and yeah, the the reason why that subplot was cut was because the actor that played Bud Black ran out of time. He he had a he had to 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 leave to go do a play or something, and like I said, everything was taking way longer than it was supposed to. I mean, the the this this movie was only it was probably only supposed to be like a few weeks shoot, and it got extended way longer. And you know, a lot of the actors stuck around because they were like, yeah, whatever, you know, nothing else to do. But this guy had other commitments, and he was like, yo. I gotta go. You're not gonna be able to wrap up my character's arc. Uh, like, I need to leave. And Shim was just like, "Oh, uh, eh, okay, whatever." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so they never got to wrap that up. Um, and so, yes, the 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 sequel was never made. Um, like the original Yongari, uh, the movie did okay box office wise. Um, but it wasn't successful enough for a sequel. Um, also planned, um, I think, uh, before he would have made Yongari 2, there was another uh, giant monster movie called Condor that Shim uh, wanted to do that would actually take place in the same like continuity. 
Um, Eric Bryant Wells would reprise his role as Captain Parker. Uh, He is the Godzilla as a pussy jetpack guy. Um, Sculpts of the monster uh, for Condor um, can be seen in that uh, documentary that we mentioned. Um, And uh, so, but that that was never done either. Um, And uh, like I said, the guy fails upwards. He managed to make Dragon Wars on a way bigger budget than Reptilian uh, a few years later, and how he convinced... And, 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 and Dragon Wars has, like, a real cast of actors. Um, it's got uh, um, uh, Robert Forrester, the great Robert Forrester, who, I mean, you know, he, he wasn't opposed to doing B-movies, but still. Um, you had Elizabeth Pena, you had... Um, Craig Robinson, who at that time was, I think, an established comedic actor. I'm pretty sure The Office was going yeah. on by then. I, and the, I don't know. The fact that he was able to attract anyone who's anybody and get an even bigger budget, and Dragon Wars was then put into a wide American release that is the, in yeah. hundreds of theaters here. I don't know how he did that. Who would look at this man who is an unhinged lunatic, for one, but also who would look at this movie, his prior endeavor, which wasn't the success that they thought it was going to be, and give him that that much money and time for a mainstream movie that would get a big international release. is It's insane. Well, after talking about Shim and all of his exploits and, and things, would it surprise you to know that in 2011... Uh, Yangu Art, his company, went bankrupt. And then he also found himself in a ton of legal trouble. And, and these included charges in, uh, for violations of labor standards. Like, gee, who could have seen that coming? <laughs> uh, and non-payment of employees. I do know that he was sentenced to several months in prison, and he I eventually filed like some sort of appeal. But um, Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's not... Um, he, he's He's... Again, though, I mean, he's, it's not, I mean, it's not like he's getting a ton of work, but he's, he is, uh, as of 2016, he's making public appearances again, and he's in good spirits. He, uh, he hosted, uh, the, the Korean version of SNL in 2016, um, which even saw him, you know, poking fun at, you know, his legal trouble and, you know, his movies that have bombed. And I mean, I mean, stuff like that isn't much different from, you know, when, I guess formally, I guess shamed <laughs> celebrities make it onto SNL now. You know, they 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 tend to have a sense of humor about their their problems. Um, but still, you know, it, even in 2016, he was hopeful that D War Two would be made. Um, of course, not at uh, Youngu Arts because you know they went bankrupt. Um. But, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, he was talking to American and Japanese co-production companies and, um, you know, he he was hopeful. He was like, oh, you know, at least by in the next 10 years, you know, hopefully we'll get it out. So I don't know. I would love to say Dragon Wars 2 sounds like something that's not going to happen. But knowing this man, I I I, he like I said, he fails upwards. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, though. I mean, I, I mean, after all the stuff this guy's been in into, and uh, the first Dragon Wars was already a bomb. I mean, 
I mean, he's he's talking about pitching it to Sony and stuff. It's like, man, you pitch that to the Asylum. They're the only ones that'll like give you anything at this point. If I don't know if there's any sense of justice in the world, um, <laughs> but he, I don't know. He's also talking about making a theme park based on reptilian and dragon world. The guy is he's delusional. Would you go to a theme park about Dragon Wars? Because I probably would, but like not uh, because it if it was me. within like an hour distance from me, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I I wouldn't make it a a, a family outing. Um, I don't know, man. But the 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 guy is 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 crazy. Um, Yangri does live on though as a mascot for a brand of fried chicken nuggets that come in little dinosaur shapes in Korea. Um, and, uh, a, a little, um, I guess, I don't know. You can Google Yongari fried chicken, but it's, it's like a whole brand of, uh, frozen chicken nugget products. And, uh, he has a little triceratops friend and, uh, I don't know, another little friend that he hangs out with other little monster friends and they, uh, sell you fried chicken over there uh in little cartoon form you know if you and and you know there's been little animated uh cartoon you know skits that they've had on tv with these little i guess kind of chibi yongari characters and um uh so yeah yongari is a a very bizarre bizarre yeah very strange history but behind this thing uh so how many, these, uh, I don't even, how many inconspicuous aliens teleporting Yongeries out of five? Uh, I have boosted my prior rating of a half star to one full star. That's, that's fair. I gave it a star and a half, which is which is probably more than it deserves, but that's what my letterbox tells me. So I'm going to stick with that. Yeah. It's, uh, there's no reason, there's no good reason to watch it. Oh no, there's, yeah. The only good reason to watch it is to just marvel at how stupid it is. Watch it, watch it with a handful of friends knowing what you're getting into. And then I think you can have some fun with it. Yeah. I mean, if you have like friends that do like, you know, shitty movie nights, you know, (laughs) like me and Trev do, like, this is the kind of thing that you would, you would show. And and listen, we, we tried, we tried desperately to get, to get Tom to join us for this episode. And now you know why he didn't, because this movie is not good. No, no. Um, okay. So that's Yongari. Uh, I don't. You know, uh, something tells me Yongri is going to be stuck selling uh, frozen chicken the rest of his <laughs> his his career. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Um, all right, I think I think we're good here on Yongri. Good night, everybody. Good night.
Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.